I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. When we come to the end of Paul's letters, we sometimes find what are a bunch of commands sort of seemingly put together loosely under some heading an editor has added of final instructions. And they seem like sometimes a bit of a shotgun of various things Paul's getting off his chest before he wraps it up. And another thing, this, and another thing. And they seem maybe a little bit unrelated. Uh, But that's not always the best way to think of it. And uh, certainly not with uh, Philippians. In Philippians, we have a number of instructions here as we continue through this final chapter, this final section of the book. And a lot of some of the themes that have been present throughout the book show up again here. And even where the themes may be a little different, certainly if we think of the context of the book of Philippians and the issues that the church was facing in Philippi, the, the uh, suffering that they were facing on account of other people. Paul mentioned early on that they were suffering the same kind of affliction and conflict Paul himself had suffered. And they also, we also know they were battling with some disunity within the church as well. As we consider those issues, certainly the instructions that we find in these closing verses, and we're not covering all of it today, but certainly in our section and through to verse 13, we're, makes a lot of sense given the context of what these uh, believers were facing. As with the Philippians, we also live in a sinful world. We battle with the world. We battle with our flesh. We battle with the devil. We have opposition that comes against us from the outside, from without, from the world. And we must also, as we have been talking, we must also guard against disunity and fighting within the church as well. And along the way, as we live in this world, we have plenty of opportunities to be tempted with anxiety, with worry. The world is an anxiety-inducing place, you've noticed, maybe. And all of life's difficulties can contribute to our angst. And these instructions that we find here are precious and important for us to cling to and to recall as we navigate this world. And so today we're going to look at verses 4 to 7, but I'm going to read through to verse 13 as uh, these kind of all fit together. Um, So we're going to uh, read 4 to 13, and then we will focus in on 4 to 7 today. So let's read Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So as we look at verses 4 to 7 today, there's five points to the sermon, and we will move through these points relatively quickly. The first point is, in a world of sin and anxiety... You are called to rejoice. In a world of sin and anxiety, you are called to rejoice. Joy has been a major theme in this letter. Paul begins the letter really talking about joy as he gives joyful thanks for the Philippian church, for the believers in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul has moreover modeled joy to the people, to the church, to us. If you recall, he's writing this letter from prison. Very unjustly, he's been 
imprisoned. Uh, began back in Jerusalem and up in Caesarea. It's been at least two years, more than two years, that he has been in jail. It has encompassed a, a rather wild journey to Rome where he writes this letter from. And while he's in prison there to make matters more complicated for him, as we saw back in chapter 1, he talks about how some brothers have been more emboldened to preach the gospel sincerely on account of his chains and suffering. But other brothers, again, as we talked about when we were there, Seemingly genuine Christians, nevertheless, were preaching Christ, the actual gospel of Jesus Christ, but they were doing so in order to further afflict Paul in his suffering. If it's an odd thing to consider, we talked about that back when we were there, but he said there in chapter 118, in verse 18, what do I make of this? He said, well, I rejoice. I rejoice. So long as Christ is actually preached, I'll rejoice in that. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul renews the explicit command to rejoice in the Lord. He even acknowledges there that he's repeating himself. And now again in chapter 4, he's back to very explicitly repeating the same thing again. He says here, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Christian joy, note here, is not rooted in our circumstances being just so, but it is rooted in the Lord. We rejoice in who the Lord Jesus is and in what he has accomplished for his people and in what he promises to yet do for us. This is a reality that will never change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Circumstances, they change. They're good one day, they're terrible the next, and they're anywhere in between. They can change in the blink of an eye. But Christ Jesus... And his gospel never change. And so it is, it's appropriate for Paul to say to the church, to you and to I, to me, to rejoice in the Lord always. There's no circumstance where that's not possible if we're rejoicing in the Lord and not simply in our circumstances. Of course, this does not mean that there aren't bitter pills to swallow along the way. We know that there are. Nor does this mean that we will always feel great. Sometimes rejoicing in the Lord is a very deliberate and conscious decision that is made by an embattled, suffering believer in difficult circumstances. It's the decision to choose to rejoice in God, to look away from circumstances, to look away from the difficulty and trial, to focus upon the attributes of God and who he is, what it is Christ Jesus has done at the cross for you, to consider what he promises to yet do for you, and to focus there to make that your joy over against the circumstances. We will look more at this in in the coming weeks, in particular as we get into what Paul will say about contentment in verses 11 to 13. But ultimately, this perspective and this kind of rejoicing that Paul's talking about is truly only possible for the person who is believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is redeemed. The good news of the gospel is that despite your sin and despite the eternal wrath of God, that you deserve, on account of your many violations of God Almighty's holy laws, there is nevertheless forgiveness of sins. There is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That Christ has actually taken the sins of all he came to die for upon himself, and he has been sacrificed. He has died for sinners. He has taken God's wrath, satisfied God's demands upon sinners by taking the full fury of God's wrath for those sins upon himself and satisfying it. As we looked at back in chapter 3, in so doing, in Christ's coming to earth in the form of man, the eternal Son of God has not only died for sinners and satisfied God's righteous demands for our sins, but he has also, in his obedience, earned righteousness. That is received by faith. There is salvation. There is forgiveness of sins. And it is given to sinners as a gift of God's grace. This is good news. And so God calls all men everywhere 
to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise is that for all who do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven, you will be granted eternal life. Moreover, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is said, are brought into God's kingdom. They are made God's children. God becomes our loving Heavenly Father. And He deals with us as a father with children, a loving father. He cares for His children. The Bible even tells us He will work even the bad things, even the difficult things that we face, ultimately for your good, for your sanctification, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are just a few of the promises that belong to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, appropriately, rejoice in the Lord. And so all that we see here about rejoicing in the Lord and about uh, peace even, as we pray to the Lord, as we'll get to, about the, the comfort of the Lord being near, as we will see, All of this begins with salvation. It begins with believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your primary need. That is every person's primary need. To be found in Christ. To be believing in him. To look away from yourself as you think about standing before God. And to place your whole, entire hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those doing this, he's reminding us here, rejoice in the Lord. And he adds, he says, again, I will say rejoice. Notice that he doesn't say, again, I say rejoice, but he says, again, I will say rejoice. It is in the future tense. It is as if Paul is expecting some pushback here. He's expecting an objection. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's as if he expects what we would all expect someone to say. Really? Is that a realistic thing to say? Do you understand the the, the suffering that I've been through, the difficulty I've been in? How can he really say rejoice in the Lord always? Is that really possible? And seemingly anticipating that, Paul's saying, again, I will say rejoice. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings eternal hope that none can sever. And it transcends whatever difficult thing that we face, whatever that may be. Nobody can snatch you out of Christ's hand. The eternal God promises to never forsake you, to never leave you. And even when life is hard, he is still with you and he does still remain good. And so there is cause for joy. And so I would appeal to you to make it a practice of consciously rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. There's lots of ways you can do this. You can pick up a hymnal and you can sing Maybe you don't know the song. You can read through the lyrics of the song. Sing it in your heart that way. You can put on a song of praise and sing along with it to praise God. Obviously, we come together and we seek as we come together to rejoice in the Lord every time we gather. You can open to a psalm of praise in the scriptures. Read it. You can pray through it. Choose worship. Choose rejoicing in God. Choose looking away from the difficulties of your circumstances. Learn, memorize the promises of God, the attributes of God. Rehearse those things. You are called to rejoice in the Lord always. Secondly, in a world of sin and anxiety, you are called to reasonableness. You are called to reasonableness. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word reasonableness gets translated a few different ways uh, in the the New Testament. It is often translated as gentleness. Sometimes in context, it's being contrasted with being violent or quarrelsome. We see that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 3. The lexical definition of the word is not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. I think reasonableness is a good translation, as is gentleness It also includes the idea of forbearance, restraint, tolerance. We are to show ourselves to be reasonable. If we think about the context here in which Paul is is writing this in chapter 4, with what we looked at last time in verses 2 and 3, 
and the strife that there was in the church that Paul addressed very explicitly between Judea and Syntyche. We can see that within the church, this whole idea of being reasonable is obviously important and necessary. We engage with brothers and sisters in a reasonable fashion, not being quarrelsome, not trying to be scrappy, not holding others to some impossible standard and then demanding that everyone else be incredibly gracious with us. Rather, we are reasonable. And this command extends beyond the church doors as well. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And so as we engage with others outside of church, at work, in society at large, in various ways, we're called to be patient, to be lenient with people, to be reasonable, even in the face of genuine wrongs being committed against us, even in the face of mistreatment. This could be on a smaller level, just getting lousy service somewhere when you're out, and that's aggravating. We're called to reasonableness. This could also be in the face of something that's much more serious and much a greater wrong even. Now, when Paul, when the Bible calls us to this and speaks this way, this, is not, this does not mean that we need to simply become doormats for every petty tyrant to just trample over us. Paul demonstrates this to us throughout his life. He got into argumentation at various times when it was necessary, especially as it pertained to his evangelism and ministry. But we also see him insisting on his rights at different points as a Roman citizen. And sometimes this is some in, a kind of conflict in his engagement. So, but even, even as he does that, even as he insists on his rights, he's reasonable and he's patient in the midst of it all. He didn't lose himself to anger and to bitterness throughout it and make un- unreasonable and ridiculous demands of other people. So if we think about this letter to the Philippians and Paul's experience in Philippi, and read about in Acts chapter 16, he was wrongly arrested there. Not only was he wrongly arrested You know, as we think about what is ultimately good, he's there preaching the gospel. He's carrying out the orders of the almighty king of the universe. You should not be arrested when you are doing that. Nevertheless, he was. But even even that, in addition to that, even Roman law was violated as he was arrested. And yet, what do we find him doing when he's imprisoned with Silas? He's ranting and railing at the... No. We find them singing. They are singing hymns in the prison. And the prisoners are listening. And you remember the miraculous event when all the chains are broken loose and the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself because he figures all these these, uh, prisoners are going to be gone. And Paul tells him not to do that. And then proclaims Christ to this jailer and he ends up getting saved. And then the magistrates came to let Paul out, and they just want him to quietly walk away, just quietly leave town. But Paul says to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. And the officials, it tells us in Acts 16, got scared. They became afraid. Because they realized, oh, they're Roman citizens. They had violated law indeed. They apologized to them. And then they asked them, please, though, they'd come and escort them out. Just leave. And they did, but only after visiting the believers before they left. So was Paul reasonable in that situation? Of course he was. He was not being unreasonable. He was patient. He was lenient. Was he a doormat? Did he just roll over and let people just trample him and say nothing? No. He still spoke up even, and was also even direct in his speech. There are so many things to infuriate the believer in this life, in a fallen, sinful world. There are so many things that we become indignant about. And I, this is not going to go away. That's not a prophecy. That's just the reality of life in a fallen world. It's always been this way. 
And it will continue to be this way until the Lord Jesus returns. And Paul says here, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Cultivate patience. Proper expectations of what life in a fallen world looks like. God is the judge of all. Will anything escape his notice? Of course not. He will judge the world and bring it to account. And so we can, of all people, deal with not having precise and perfect justice always meted out in this life. It doesn't make it right. I'm not saying that's good or we ought to just be real glad when things don't, you know, when injustice prevails. But we can still calmly press forward. And in the church, likewise, there will be wrongs between brothers and sisters. There is still sin. We are still sinners. And in the case of brothers and sisters, is their sin likewise covered by the blood of Christ? Can we not deal reasonably with one another? Of course we can. And Paul calls us to this. Thirdly, in a world of sin and anxiety, remember that the Lord is near. The Lord is near. At the end of verse 5, Paul says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. The word translated at hand is the word near. And it can refer to two things. It can either refer to something being spatially near, like this microphone is near to my face. Or it can be near in the sense of time, something that is in the future but drawing close, drawing near. So sunset is near, something like that. The question is, which one of these does Paul have in mind when he says here that the Lord is near? Is it that Christ is spatially near, that he's with us, his presence is with you now? Or is he saying this in regard to time? That is, that the return of Christ is drawing near. Of course, both of these Concepts are biblical. Both of these things are true. Certainly, Christ's continued presence with his church is a comfort to embattled believers. And it's motivation to deal graciously with one another and to pour out our souls in prayer to God because Christ is with us. He is here. If we jump down to verse 9, he's going to say, and the God of peace will be with you. That would be a, a spatial nearness. He is right there with you. But also the return of Christ, which is really always spoken of in the Bible, in the New Testament, as being near, as being close, as being at hand. That's the kind of language used to speak of it. And this, likewise, is a significant comfort and motivation for believers. The implication would be that with Christ's soon return will come with it your own vindication. If you are suffering wrong from other people, say you're suffering from people outside the church persecuting, say, Christians, to endure, to press forward, for the Lord's coming is near. It's at hand. He will return. He will bring vengeance upon evildoers and glorification to his people. Moreover, this nearness can settle the anxiety of our souls. Glory awaits Christ is coming. This can settle the angst within. It is possible that Paul's use of the word near here is intentionally ambiguous because he may well have both views in mind. Jesus is with his people now and he is returning soon. And both of these realities are biblical and both are a comfort that we should latch onto. And I would also argue that this phrase, the Lord is near, grounds all the other commands in this section we're looking at today. Because the Lord is near in time and space, rejoice in him always. Be reasonable. Let it be known to others, your reasonableness. And put off anxiety while putting on prayer. All of this rooted in the fact that the Lord Jesus is near. Root yourselves in this. Christ Jesus is with you now, even if you don't feel it, if you're trusting in him. His spirit resides within you. He is with us as we gather around his means of grace. And he is also coming soon. At the very end of scripture, Revelation 22, John writes, He who testifies to these things, speaking of Jesus, says, this is a quote of the Lord Jesus, Surely I am coming soon. 
And then John adds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The Lord is near. He is at hand. Fourthly, in a world of sin and anxiety, know the privilege of prayer. In a world of sin and anxiety, know the privilege of prayer. In verse 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This word for anxious can be used in different ways. Back in chapter 2, verse 20, if you remember, we talked about this when it said that Timothy had genuine concern for the welfare of the Philippians. That's the word anxious. He was anxious about them. Now, that was not a sinful use of the word. I argued then that the word burden might be an appropriate sense of the word used in chapter 2. That is, Timothy had a, a concern for the people that was a heavy matter. He felt it. He was concerned for them, burdened for them. But of course, this word anxiety can also refer to being unduly concerned about a matter. It can be used in a sinful sense. In Luke chapter 10, verse 41, Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Jesus also instructs his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 26, do not be anxious about your lives. And the things that he talks about specifically there are clothing and food, what you will wear, what you will eat. And he's not just saying, what, don't be anxious about what outfit you're going to pick out tomorrow for that special occasion. He's saying whether there will be an outfit to put on to just live your life tomorrow. That's what he's talking about. And Jesus calls the disciples not to be anxious about those matters. So this is referring to worry. It's referring to fretting about matters, playing it over and over again in our minds and becoming focused and fixated upon it and upset about what may or may not happen or having undue angst about various things, sometimes even real issues like food. If you don't know there, if there's going to be food tomorrow, we would understand someone being a little bit on edge about that. And yet the statement here is to be anxious for nothing. We are commanded away from worrying about anything. So when is worry right? It's not right. You say, well, that's impossible. And I would say, well, you're understanding the law of God maybe a little more and why it is you need the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. It's never right to sin. It's never right to give in to lust, sinful anger, to covet, to engage in idolatry, nor is it right to worry. If you wonder how we battle this, besides resting in Christ's salvation, Paul goes on to address this. He shows us this. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but... In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There are many helpful truths that help to us to battle with anxiety and with worry. But here Paul points us to the privilege of prayer. He tells us to put off anxiety and worry and to put on prayer in everything. That is, in all of those circumstances and situations... All of them, particularly here, those things that would lead you and cause you and tempt you to be worried. Paul says in everything to pray. All those situations that would tempt you to anxiety, take it to the Lord by making requests. And these requests are done by means of prayer and supplication, he says. We're appealing to the almighty God. Those words, prayer and supplication, they can be used interchangeably, but supplication has a sense of urgency to it and a humble begging. He says, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. So it's not simply that he's saying we just go to God with a list of all our issues and concerns and rattle them off, 
But he adds with thanksgiving. We go with thankfulness. Gratitude to the God who has saved you. Who has supplied all of your needs in the past. Who is the creator of all. Who will show you great kindness into eternity. Thankfulness is a major theme throughout the scriptures. And it's often tied very closely to prayer. One writer notes here how thanksgiving seems kind of out of place almost in this verse. It's not what we might expect when we're reading this. And therefore, he suggests it might actually hold one of the keys to anxiety. Of course, when we think about being anxious and worrying and prayer, we would think about all the things that, Lord, take this from me, help me with this, resolve this issue, don't let this thing come to pass, help me with this, with that, fix the situation, remove my anxiety. We think of all those requests we would pile up. But thanksgiving, that, that makes us stop and think in a different direction. Notice Paul assumes here that you have reason to be thankful to God. It's not if you can find a reason to be thankful, then be thankful. No, we make our requests and bring thanksgiving as well. And in this way, we make our requests known to God. The implication is that when we do this, we are leaving these burdens with God. We bring our concerns to Him. We pray, we lay them before Him. Leave them then at his feet and turn and carry on. God cares. God knows I've brought this to him. I've poured out my concern, even the troubles of my heart and the frustrations I have. I've, I've expressed this with thanksgiving as well. And so I now do not any longer need to keep obsessing about this and these concerns. We bring them to the Almighty and then seek to take our thoughts captive And to think about the truth, which we'll get to more of next week in verse 8 and 9. So we don't pray. He's not saying here you pray and then just return to just worrying about it. We pray and we move forward. It's like 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The idea there of casting is throwing them at his feet, throwing them at him and leaving them there. God cares and he knows. This is our privilege. This is our privilege. We face difficulty. Life is hard. There's many unknowns, troubling things. We're tempted to worry about it, to fret about it. And God, who created everything, the God of the universe says, bring them to me. Pour them out to me with thanksgiving Cast them upon me. You really don't need to continue playing it over and over and fixating on it and worrying about it. This is for your good that he is telling us these things. And so make war against your anxiety and worry through prayer. By bringing your requests to God with thanksgiving. Breathing out your sorrows there before his throne. And being confident that as you come in the name of Jesus, because of what Christ has accomplished for you, you have access to the Father and he is hearing you as you pray. God is hearing you. And he will respond. He will respond in his way and he will respond in his timing. And it's good for us then to submit ourselves to his timing and to his response. And if that response is not instant, then we get to practice what the scriptures call waiting upon the Lord. You know that phrase, wait upon, I will wait upon the Lord, waiting upon him. We see it throughout the Psalms especially. God knows. He's not slow. He's not slow in responding. He's aware of your needs. He knows your needs before you ask. big part of this is unburdening ourselves to God. Again, not just dumping all of our complaints and fears and concerns to our friends and people around us, though we should have an ear for that for one another and be there for one another, of course. 
But we should not do that to the neglect of bringing this all before our God. Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Even as we battle the sin of worry, we're finding mercy and grace in time of need. Fifthly, in a world of sin and anxiety, there is a peace for the believer. There is a peace for the believer. After telling us not to be anxious, but instead to pray, Paul then gives a result. He gives a promise. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think it is common when we think about peace to immediately assume we're talking about inner tranquility. But typically, typically when Paul speaks about peace, he means it in a relational sense. We have peace with God. We have peace with other brothers and sisters in Christ. It is there's no more hostility, that kind of peace. And I think a case can be made for that here. Certainly, there is a great need for this church to have peace with one another in the midst of conflict. However, the peace that is referred to here is not contrasted with the church's infighting, nor is it contrasted with strife with God, but it is contrasted with anxiety. Peace is presented as the result of our battle to put off anxiety and worry, instead to pray. Taking it to the Lord in prayer. So I do think that this is talking about a measure of calm. I say a measure because it's not always just an absolute tranquility where body and soul are just completely feeling great and at peace. It is similar to how rejoicing always doesn't mean that we're always really pumped and excited about the circumstances of our life. Rejoicing involves a joy that transcends circumstances in such a way that there can be a joy that mingles even with sorrow. When we're mourning the death of a loved one, there's going to be a sorrow. We understand that. That doesn't mean that person lacks all joy whatsoever, necessarily. Both can be present. So to this peace is a calm that transcends circumstances such that there can be calmness of mind even as we might still experience some physical stress. So I would understand peace, this kind of peace at least, the experience of peace, to have degrees to it. Maybe it could be a complete calm in both body and soul. Or it could be a measure of calm despite physical distress. The peace here is said to be the peace of God. It is a peace that is his and that he dispenses to his people. It comes from him and it is something that it says surpasses man's understanding. It excels our understanding. That is to say we cannot fully grasp this peace that God gives to his people in troubled times. How do we really, really explain Paul and Silas singing in prison these hymns after being treated so poorly? We're read even this week of a martyr who was the next day going to go to the stake and be burned. And when he got up in the morning, he testified to others that he slept great. He slept really well. How do, we, how do we understand such things? It's beyond even our understanding. You and I would say, well, he obviously has a real firm confidence in Christ and a hope of eternity. We know that. We understand it to an extent. But that that man would then just sleep really peacefully is, is amazing. <laughs> it's a peace of God that transcends understanding. And he says it will guard or protect your hearts and minds or thoughts in Christ Jesus. I suggest that what this means is that the peace we get when we pray to God, when we leave our sorrows with him, 
This peace will protect us through the trial that we are facing. It doesn't necessarily mean that the trial will be instantly removed. That's what we would like this to say. But it will guard us. The peace we receive will help us endure. You will come through. The peace that God gives you will be sufficient to help you endure. It also suggests that this possible, this is saying that the peace that God gives you will help protect you from the various other sins that might arise out of worry. Out of having a, a clamoring and anxious soul. When we give in to worry, it often begets other sins. Often we will see this issue And it's not being resolved and we're anxious about it. And so we will sometimes engage in sinful behavior to try to fix the situation. We steal. We lie. We we manipulate to try to fix this thing. We just want this fixed so badly. We just want resolution. We often become inwardly focused, selfish. And we get knocked off course of what we ought to be doing and pursuing and focusing on the vocation God has called you to. Even again, if you think about Jesus in Matthew 6, when he says not to be anxious, again, he's talking about clothing and food, whether you'll have these things. These are legitimate needs, right, to life. But then he says to them, what what are they supposed to do instead of worrying about these things? God knows about these things. He will provide for you. He will clothe you. He says, seek first his kingdom and righteousness. Right? Worry knocks you off of that. Distracting. Even Martha. You're busy and troubled about so many things. She's trying to host the Lord Jesus. That's not a terrible thing. She wants it to be just so. And yet she's missing the main thing. Just sitting at his feet and learning from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also worth noting that in Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew, 9, Matthew 13. Remember, he, the seed is sowed and the soil represents various responses to the gospel, which is the seed. There is a seed that's thorny soil. And initially, this person responds and seemingly there's fruitfulness there. They seem to believe the message. But then the thorns grow up and choke it out and it proves unfruitful. What are those thorns said to be by Jesus? They are the cares, that is the worries, the anxieties of this world. So there is a promise here of peace for those in Christ Jesus, that this peace will protect the believer from such things, from being destroyed under this trial, from being carried off into sinful apostasy, eternal unbelief. There's a promise of peace that will protect the believer from these things. Whenever we talk about anxiety, a lot of questions will arise. And and we don't have time to try to chase all of them and address all of them. This passage, I don't think, is terribly complicated. But we have questions that arise for a number of reasons. But for one thing... We've, it, 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 a lot of it comes down to the fact that our experience doesn't seem to be as easy as this passage would suggest it should be. That's, I think, often the case. So we might pray, but then we don't feel peace. So I, I would just remind you that the relationship between your body and soul is complicated. And there's a lot we don't know about how the two respond and interact. And I would also remind you that Jesus himself, though never sinning, even after we are told that an angel was attending to him and strengthening him in the Garden of Gethsemane, even after that, he said that he was filled with agony and that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus was about to have the cup of God's wrath poured out upon him, and he knew what that would entail. 
And this was a heavy weight for him. So we need to be careful that we don't simply associate peace with always feeling great about everything. We can experience stress and some measure of agony and yet not be panicky and sinfully fretting about it. We can have a peace of mind in the midst of it. And what we should also notice about our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane is that when he's experiencing stress and agony, and even in Matthew it talks about uh, he's troubled in soul, he said. But when it says in Luke 22, 43 to 44, that he was in agony and he's sweating blood, it says he prayed more earnestly. He was strengthened by angels to fight through the agony. And I would suggest to you temptation. Temptation to worry and whatever else. And it says he prayed more earnestly. He continued to pray. And he endured and he rose and he went boldly to the cross. So for those struggling to have peace in the midst of worry, in the midst of anxiety, I would encourage you to pray and to keep praying, to persevere in praying, to pray more earnestly. I think often we, we pray for a couple minutes and then don't feel great and we begin to wonder if this is true. Could this be true? Well, Jesus himself continued to pray more earnestly. It explicitly says an angel was strengthening him. And yet he continues to be, have agony and sweat blood. And so he prays all the more. If that's true of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to be people who pray. Praying's not always easy. There's lots of ways we can find help to do that. Phone somebody, pray together with other people. That can be helpful. Likewise, opening the scriptures and praying through things that we read. Often the Psalms are very helpful for this. As we read brothers from past ages who poured out anguish of soul to the Lord and rehearsed the promises of God to them. Psalm 13 is is a good example. We had more time, we'd flip there, but there's lots. Another aspect of our our battle with anxiety, with worry, is what we're going to look at next week. Next week, Paul's going to, we're going to get into verse 8, where Paul talks about what we're doing with our minds, what we're thinking about. And if worry is fretting about something we ought not to be, then what do we do? We pray, and now what do we do? I've prayed, I've brought this, I've poured this out before God, and now what? And he'll tell us the types of things we should then try to focus our, our minds upon. And in all of this, there is hope that calm and peace will come. You might not feel it right away. You might have to fight for it. It's going to come. The Lord is with you. The Lord is near. He's, he's here. He's at hand. If you don't feel that calmness and peace right away, continue to hold fast to this. Claim this promise to the Lord. Pour out yourself before the Lord. And notice finally here that God's peace protects the hearts and thoughts of those in Christ Jesus. Prayer is not just a magical formula that works apart from Christ, apart from faith in the Lord. This is a promise for God's people, for God's redeemed, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, we need to be united to Christ by faith. And for, for, for you who are, there is a peace to be had in the midst of a sinful and anxious world. In closing, again, it is a sinful and anxiety-inducing world that we inhabit. But we are not left to the tyranny of it without resources. This battle we have with worry and with anxiety is one of the things that is a constant reminder to us of our weakness. A constant reminder to us of our need for the Lord and for his mercy and for his help and for his sustaining power to keep us. And that's what he promises us here. The Lord Jesus is indeed near. 
Let us rejoice. Consciously seek to rejoice in the Lord. Always. Let us make our reasonableness known as we live out our days in this sinful and anxious world. Let us battle our anxiety by being much in prayer, holding out hope that God will indeed guard and keep us through whatever trials we face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm very aware that this is a a difficult subject for many people. And in many ways, we are scratching the surface here. But Father, I pray that you would take these words of yours and impress them upon the hearts of your people. Father, that we would indeed rejoice in the Lord, that we would look away from all that troubles us, from all that robs us of joy, and spend time in your word, spend time thinking upon eternal truths. I pray that you would make us, God, reasonable people that have reasonable expectations of life in a fallen world, that we would be gentle with others who perhaps wrong us, that we would be patient and merciful and lenient with such, that we would even engage with those who wrong us in reasonable fashion. Father, we pray that you would help us to be quick to pray, to quick to pour out all of our griefs and pains to you. Father, thank you that you invite us to do this. Forgive us for being slow to pray. Teach us to pray, to pray more, to pray constantly, to in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present our requests to you. Father, make us thankful people. Help us to be those who consciously rehearse the the reasons we have to be thankful to you. Father, we do pray that your peace would indeed guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That we would be calm in our minds, even in the midst of genuine suffering and difficulties. That we would be sure of the truths of your word. Father, we obviously need your help in these things. And so we thank you that we can come to you and find help. Father, we pray that you would keep us. I pray that you would encourage us, make us hopeful and joyful. We pray that you do this for your own glory, your own namesake, and for our own joy as well. In Jesus' name, amen.